1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I'm going to invite Rowan to come up and speak to us about what this passage means. If you ever go to Washington DC and go to the National Museum of American History, you will find there a particular inscription. And uh, here's a bit of an excerpt from it. It's a statement by Joseph Henry, who was the first secretary of the Smithsonian Institute. He made this statement back in the 1800s and it captures, I think, much of what we'd call the Enlightenment spirit. I'll read the full quote. It goes like this. Modern civilization depends on science. James Smithson was well aware that knowledge should not be viewed as existing in isolated parts but as a whole, each portion of which throws light on all the other and that the tendency of all is to improve the human mind and give it new sources of power and enjoyment. Narrow minds think nothing of importance but their own favourite pursuit. But liberal views exclude no branch of science or literature for they all contribute to sweeten, to adorn and to embellish life. Science is the pursuit above all which impresses us with the capacity of man for intellectual and moral progress and awakens the human intellect to aspiration for a higher condition of humanity. There in that quote is a great belief in the power of the human mind. Here is the Enlightenment, the humanist project carved into the walls of one of the world's great institutions. That in the gaining of human wisdom we can improve the human condition, gain power and make real moral progress, it says. Now you've come to this university to study, the University of Sydney, the oldest tertiary institution in the country dedicated to the passing on of human wisdom and learning. It's one of the great repositories of human knowledge in this country. Uh, the University of Sydney Library, you might have seen it anyway. How many volumes do you think Fisher Library holds? Two million, four million or five million? Take a guess. Who says two million? Who says four million? Who says five million? Well, it seems to be a tall building, maybe you're right. 5.2 million volumes, plus another 370,000 e-books 
and another 100,000 journals. But our university is more than just a repository for human knowledge. It's also one of the foremost places in Australia where the envelope of human understanding is being pushed back. The frontiers of human knowledge are expanding here. According to the latest figures I could find on the university website, which admittedly are from 2008, but let that not be a reflection on our university, <laughs> academics, how, many, how much did academics in this university contribute in just that year, 2008? Well, what I could find out was that academics at Sydney Uni published in that year 378 books, so that's seven books a week, that sounds pretty good. They contributed 549 conference papers and they wrote 2,770 journal articles. That's 53 every week of the year. Just on those numbers alone, you have come to one of the high towers of human knowledge and wisdom. And presumably you're here to get a little bit of that wisdom for yourself so people will pay you a lot of money in the future. Now, mind you, Sydney Uni really is only a small bit player in the global quest for wisdom. What the world's seen over the last 30 years is, has been called a knowledge explosion. Uh, just a couple of stats for you. But between 1980 and the year 2000, more was written about history in that 20-year period than had been written in the entire history of humanity up to that point. I'll give you another one. How many papers just, on the, just in the area of chemistry are published a year? Well, one statistic I found said that in each year there are one million chemistry papers published every year. Human knowledge and wisdom. We human beings are constructing a huge edifice called knowledge, a massive ivory tower of human wisdom and understanding. And yet... God, the one true God, the Christian understanding of God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this God who speaks to us through the Bible, he says this. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Here is God's public policy. He's going to destroy the so-called wisdom of the wise. It's not a secret plan. He's declared it publicly. God, the one God who really is, is going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. Now, we need to think carefully about this before we leap to any wrong conclusion. What does God mean when he says he will destroy the wisdom of the wise? Does he mean that he's against all human understanding? Is he against the whole academic enterprise? What about all the good things that have come from human knowledge and understanding, all the improvements in, in health or education? Is God somehow anti-science? Is he wanting us all just to live in caves? Well, the answer is, of course, no. We rejoice and we give thanks to God for the improvements in our lives because of the advance of human knowledge and understanding. God is not anti-university. God is not anti-learning. God is not anti-libraries, he's not even anti-exams, much to your disappointment. <laughs> the problem, see, with worldly wisdom is in its arrogant rejection of God. Worldly wisdom says, 
I have no need of God. I can work everything out by myself. God has no place in this picture, in this truth that I'm putting forward. Whereas a Christian perspective from the Bible says that all truth, wherever you find it, all truth is actually God's truth. Why? Because the whole of the world is God's world. He is its creator. The Bible tells us he is its sustainer and ultimately it tells us he is its judge and its rebuilder. That's why the Bible repeatedly teaches that if you want to get wise, you have to start with God. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The starting point for any true wisdom is this fear of the Lord, a right reverent sort of acknowledgement of who God is. Without that foundation, you can know a lot of true things. You can know true things about the economy, about history, about educational theory, about obscure mating rituals of New Zealand swamp rats, whatever else you're learning in your lectures and tutes. You can know lots of stuff, but the most important thing, the most foundational thing that you can know of who God is, of how he, how he responds to you, of what he wants for you, you can be completely ignorant of this because you don't know God. And so God's publicly stated policy is that he's going to destroy this worldly wisdom, this wisdom that excludes him from the picture, that tries to proceed without him and therefore is actually the height of human arrogance. Well, how's God going to see through this policy of destroying the wisdom of the wise? I can think of a few ways he could do it that would be pretty cool. He could send down a giant foot from the sky and squash Fisher Library stack. (laughs) That would be a pretty cool way to destroy the wisdom of the wise and probably get some attention at least around the campus. Or maybe he could launch the perfect computer virus that would take down the internet and destroy every web page in existence. That would be the end of a fair bit of wisdom and a fair bit of rubbish. Or all go at one hit. But the interesting thing when you read the Bible and you read where this particular part of the Bible is that what becomes clear is this is not a plan for the future so much as a plan that God has already achieved in the past. He has already destroyed the wisdom of the wise. Well, when did he do that? I didn't get the memo. When has he destroyed the wisdom of the wise? Well, to work that out, we need to look a little bit more carefully at what God says here in this particular part of the Bible to understand it. Now, this statement that is there on your screen, it comes from the New Testament letter called 1 Corinthians. It was written by the Apostle Paul in the first century AD. He was one of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He wrote it to a group of Christians living in a place called Corinth in ancient Greece. Now, if you were here last week, we started a little bit of an exploration of this letter that Paul writes to this Corinthian church. And what we saw there was that instead of living for God in the way that God had called them to, this particular church had retained a lot of the worldly values of their surrounding Corinthian culture. In particular, they had taken the worldly value of wisdom from their culture 
And in their culture, wisdom looked like fancy debating styles. It looked like um, clever rhetoric, impromptu speeches. That's what was considered wise in their culture. And they had walked it into the church. They kept hold of it and now they're trying to use it in the church to assess their various Christian leaders on this worldly standard of wisdom and rhetoric. So the Apostle Paul writes to them and says, look, I'm trying to make clear to you the mistake you're making and tries to set them on the right path. And the way he does it is by explaining God's public policy with respect to worldly wisdom. And he says, God has already exposed the futility of worldly wisdom. And he then directs their eyes, he directs their focus to the death of Jesus on the cross. He says, this is where God has destroyed the wisdom of the wise. So let's think about that for a minute. If you've got your Bible there, it'd be really helpful to look at it. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just from verse 18. I'm just going to read a few verses out for you. Let me read it to you. For the message about the cross, he writes, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. If you've got it there in front of you, you can see in verse 20, Paul says rhetorically, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The answer being, yes, indeed, he has. The wise one, the scribe, the debater of this age, they have now been vanquished. They've been defeated already, even while they continue to argue and pontificate. Well, how have they been defeated? Verse 21, because through their great wisdom and learning, they still have not known God. That's how God defeats the worldly wisdom of every age. He does not make himself known through worldly human intellectual achievement. I want you to imagine for a moment the whole of humanity gathered together into a tower like the one on the screen. Imagine that we're all there, resident in the tower, But whoever was in charge had decided to allocate rooms based on your intellectual achievement. The great tragedy of this is that down the bottom are the 20%, one in five, of the world's population who are tragically illiterate. Hundreds of millions of them. Gradually as you work your way up the tower... You come through those who've been blessed with a primary school education. And then you get to the much smaller percentage of those who've actually received a secondary education. Then you come to the the elites, those who've received a tertiary level of education, like you, like 38% of Australians. But then you can move on beyond there and you move through to those with postgraduate degrees, 
You move through to the genuine scholars, the academics, and then right at the top, right at the very top, you get the Einsteins, the Newtons, the Shakespeare's, the Hawking's, the Mozart, the great novelists, the wisest politicians, or maybe they won't be there, but (laughs) the great religious figures. They're right at the top and there they are, reaching skyward to grab hold of God. But God looks down at the tower and he just says, no, I will not be apprehended by you in that fashion. I I choose to not make myself known to you by your human intellectual achievements. And in that way, God destroys the wisdom of the wise by not allowing himself to be made known through our high ivory towers. If you want to appear learned, I've worked out how to do it, you give your talk or your book that you're writing or your essay or your article, give it a really complicated title. And people will usually just sort of, especially at university, think that you're obviously something's pretty special. Well, I remember, I was going to say reading a book, but truth be told, I didn't read it. It was too hard for me. But I browsed through it. And this book had a very imposing title. I'm going to give it to you now. Here it goes. Mathematical Undecidability, Quantum Non-Locality and the Question of the Existence of God. Now, this book was a series of essays by a whole bunch of very learned scientists exploring very deep ideas in mathematics and physics. Uh, The Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle and Gödel's Incompleteness Theorems. Very deep truths at the very forefront, really, of human insight. And they were trying to establish what these ideas might reveal about the existence of God. And you know the answer that they come to in that book? This incredibly learned piece? The answer is... not much. It really doesn't tell us much about God at all. In fact, their conclusion was well, God does not seem to be incompatible with these truths that we have discovered. There is no incoherence. That was it. That was the sum total of what human wisdom and understanding can tell us about who God is. Nothing about his character. Nothing about his will and purpose for us. Nothing about what he's actually done. It could tell us nothing. But God has not actually kept himself hidden. Instead of revealing himself through human wisdom, God has decided to make himself known through a particular message, a message about Jesus crucified. And this seemingly foolish word about Jesus crucified, through that message God makes himself known to the world. And in this way he brings about the complete defeat of worldly wisdom because God can be known, he's revealed himself in the cross of Jesus but worldly wisdom continues in its futile searching and posturing with at the end of the day no real knowledge of God. And this saving knowledge of God, we're told here, is available to everyone, to everyone who believes. It's not about your IQ, your intellectual capacity. Paul goes on in this very chapter to say that actually God's public policy has, is, is visible in the sort of people who 
are part of his church, part of his people. God doesn't usually choose the wise or the powerful or those of exalted social status. Quite the contrary, he often chooses the lowly, the weak, the foolish and grants them his spirit so that they might hear the truth about Jesus and believe. And he does that in order to compound the shame of those who think they are strong, they are wise. We like to think that human wisdom is very wise but you don't have to look very far to realise that time and time again just how limited human understanding is and actually how mistaken human wisdom sometimes can be. A really easy sort of area to pick on is technology and I'll do it just because it's fun. So, in 1946, Daryl Zunick was the head of 20th Century Fox, which at that time was a company that just made movies, right? Big Hollywood company. In 1946, television is just being released in the States. And this is what Daryl Zunick, in his wisdom, said. Television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. Really? Here's uh, Ken Olsen of uh, Digital Equipment fame, DEC, 1977. There is no reason for any individual to have a computer in his home. <laughs> Bill Gates, 1981. 640K <laughs> ought to be enough for anybody. 1984. John Dwork, computer commentator just as Apple releases its Mac first Macintosh. The Macintosh uses an experimental pointing device called a mouse. There is no evidence that people want to use these things. These are people who are at the very forefront of technology, wisdom in their field, and their pronouncements, their assessments, mistaken. Human knowledge is often mistaken. Or think much more tragically about our attempts to cure cancer. You may not realise this, but after the US managed to land people on the moon in 1969, they were, they were pretty impressed with themselves and their move was on then to say, right, well, we've put people on the moon, what are we going to tackle next? Is there anything that we can't tackle? And so the situation was, let's tackle cancer. Let's tackle that great scourge on humanity, cancer. If we can put people on the moon, we can do cancer. Richard Nixon, 1971, signs a bill which is commonly known in history now as the War on Cancer Bill that goes to the American Congress, and Congress had this to say in 1971. Curing cancer, they said, it's a national crusade to be accomplished by 1976. How wrong we were. But we didn't learn. 2003, the US National Cancer Institute director, Andrew Eckenbach, he said, we can create interventions so that no one will suffer and die prematurely from cancer and we will do so by 2015. He said that in 2003. We've got a year to go. No one, no one is expecting this to happen now. Human, human wisdom and understanding, we think we are so wise. We think we can see where things will go. We think there is no limit to our understanding of what we can do, but it's just blatantly not true. I'll give you one final example uh, from your, uh, within your own lifetime. I want you to do something for me. I want you to do this on the desk. 
Then I want you to do this on your own arms. Right? And then pretend that you're doing it to the person next to you. Because I don't actually want you to hit them, right? But, right. This is a bit of a physics lesson for you if you're not a scientist. Okay. The world is made of stuff and it's sort of stuff, right? That's called stuff. And in your own lifetime, in the last 20 years, physicists have worked out that if you look at all the stuff, all the sort of atoms, everything made of atoms and molecules, and you add it all up, they've discovered that that only makes up less than 5% of the universe. All the stuff you can measure and see. Only 5%. And they've worked out that there's another 27% that comes from this thing called dark matter and that then there's another 68% of the universe is this thing that they've called dark energy. This is an insight within your lifetimes. Now, do you know what dark energy is? Well, if you do know, you are the only person who knows. <laughs> no one knows what dark energy is. We've just called it something, dark energy. We don't know what it is, and we know, but we know that it makes up 68% of the universe. We are deeply limited in our grasp of truth. We know true things by the grace of God, but how much do we really know? It is deeply limited and tragically often mistaken. In light of that, right, just in light of that picture, how arrogant is it when we say there is clearly no God? It's clearly all rubbish. When we try to exclude God from the picture, isn't that the height of human arrogance given the limitations that we experience in every other field of knowledge? And yet, around the world, there are children, little children, there are teenagers, there are illiterate millions in the developing world who, under the hand of God, are truly wise. Why? because they know that God has revealed himself in Jesus, in the cross of Jesus, and they've entrusted themselves to that truth. God has destroyed the wisdom of the wise by revealing himself to those who entrust themselves to this Jesus. So let's say as we come towards the end, let's just dig down a little bit deeper into this. Why is this message about the crucifixion of Jesus regarded as such foolishness by some and yet how can it be the wisdom of God uh, under God's hand? Well, uh, two things. Um, you might, I, ho I hope you're aware that Jesus of Nazareth, real historical person, no genuine historian doubts that, uh, real historical person executed by the Romans in about 30 AD outside Jerusalem. He was executed by crucifixion, which is a particularly gruesome sort of form of execution where you die usually by asphyxiation. You sort of choke yourself to death, ultimately. Now, it's hard for us to grasp just how difficult it is to proclaim a Christian good news message, a Christian gospel that highlights death by crucifixion. Uh, Paul says it here in this passage that we looked at in verse 23. He says, We proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The idea that the Christ, who is the Jewish promised king, the idea that this king, who was meant to be victorious, that he would be crucified, well, that was almost an oxymoron. 
The Christ couldn't be crucified. The king can't be defeated like that. That's not victory. And so for the Jews, the idea that to say that Jesus is this Christ and he was crucified, they say that, that just makes no sense. That's a stumbling block. I don't get it. I can't get past that. Similarly for Gentiles, uh, non-Jews, uh, to proclaim this man executed like a criminal outside of Jerusalem, he is actually king over all kings. He's actually lord over all lords. He is God come amongst us. That just seems like utter foolishness. Really, this guy died like a criminal? In fact, here's a piece of graffiti from the second century where people are making fun of Christians. Uh, the translation is, Alexanimos worships his God. What's he worshipping? He's worshipping someone up on a cross with a donkey's head. Basically saying, you Christians who worship this crucified Jesus, I mean, you may as well go and worship a donkey, worship an ass. How ridiculous is this, that this one could be God amongst us? It was just utterly ridiculous. So, it's incredible. There was just, that's why it's regarded as a stumbling block by Jews and just as utter foolishness by the Gentiles. It's just ridiculous. But how then is this message actually the wisdom of God? Well, the way into that is to ask a different question. Ask first of all, what does God say he is achieving when Jesus dies? Paul mentions this a bit further on in verse 30 and his answer is really quite ironic What God achieves for us through Jesus' death is life. What comes through Jesus' death under God's hand is life. Let me read out verse 30 for you. He, God, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What comes through the cross and which is brought to completion through Jesus' resurrection from the dead is life for everyone who will put their trust in him, everyone who will believe. What sort of life are we talking about? Well, it's described there in that verse as righteousness, that is right standing with God, as sanctification, that is being cleansed by God, as redemption, that is being rescued by God. And what this shows is that what's really at stake here is not really just whether you're wise or foolish. The big problem here isn't really ignorance, The big problem is actually your standing with God. The big question is not are you wise or foolish, the big question is are you perishing or are you being saved? You can see this back in verse 18. Paul said the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. See our arrogant attempts to rub God out of the picture to refuse to treat him as God, refuse to let him tell us how to live our life, the life that he's given us, that renders us, according to the Bible, renders us with a problem. We are now liable for God's just condemnation for rejecting him. It puts a stain on our character, on our person, that we cannot remove ourselves. It's it's a symptom of our being deeply admired, enmeshed in bondage to sin, that we reject God in those ways. We are, in short, perishing. What we need is saving. And out of his great love, God does that which we cannot do ourselves. 
He saves it, saves us through Jesus' death. So Christ dies in our place, taking the condemnation that should have been ours, meaning that we can, we can be right with God. Christ dies and it's by his bloodshed that we are wiped clean, the stain is removed. Christ dies defeating sin and death so that we can be rescued from out of that bondage that we couldn't rescue ourselves. Christ is our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption so that we might have life. Uh, Reflecting on the cross of Jesus, one Christian writer put it this way and I I hope you find this helpful because I certainly did. He said, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is humanity substituting itself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for humanity. Humanity asserts itself against God, puts itself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for humanity and puts himself where only humanity deserves to be. Humanity claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to humanity alone. Arrogant human wisdom excludes God from the picture, says we can do it all on our own, but actually God in the person of Jesus humbles himself, takes our place, bears our guilt so that we might have righteousness, redemption, life. That is the wisdom of the cross. That is the wonder of the cross that here is God displaying his wisdom and power granting us what we so desperately needed and couldn't get for ourselves. In a month's time it'll be Easter and every science and engineer loves Easter because you get a Friday off. I know if you're an art student, you get every week is like Easter for you. (laughs) What is Easter about? Well, in Australia, Easter is about chocolate. Australia is um, the 51st largest country in terms of population. You know, we're way down at number 51 in terms of population. But you know where we come in terms of chocolate consumption? Number nine. We are punching far above our weight, or maybe... (laughs) It's reflected in our weight um, (laughs) when it comes to chocolate consumption. We spend $200 million every Easter on chocolate. We have, in fact, the highest per capita consumption of Easter eggs in the world. No country eats more Easter eggs than us. And you know what the average is per person? Ten eggs. And you're going, ten? I know which side of the average I'm on, right? (laughs) In our country, in our country, the astounding truth of Jesus and his death at Easter has been eclipsed by chocolate eggs. That's worldly human wisdom at work. Because the cross of Jesus, the engine room of human history, the heart of salvation for desperate humanity who needs life, that has now just become a long weekend and a chance to pick out. How do you respond to the message of this crucified Jesus? How do you view it? Is it foolishness to you? Or do you start to see in it the wisdom and power of God? 
Paul makes a very clear, uh, clear appeal to the Corinthians on this question and I'm going to finish with this. He says in chapter 3 verse 18, he says, Do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools. That is, you should accept this foolish message so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are foolish. You should become a fool. You may be at uni. You may have had a fantastic ATAR. But you should become a fool. Why? Because that is how God wants to give you life. The world will say you are crazy, that you're giving your life away. But the truth of the matter is that is the only way you can secure the life that really is life. Uh, And then Paul tells them this promise. He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. If you put your trust in Jesus, if you accept this foolish message, God's promise is to save you, to give you the life you need. Will you embrace God's foolish wisdom? Will you become truly wise? Will you move from perishing to being saved through faith in Christ? I hope you will, but you may need to explore it further. You should do that. If you've not sat down and actually read one of the, Christ, one of the accounts of Jesus' life, teaching, death and resurrection, you should do so. Can you afford not to? To not read it, to write it off without examining it for yourself. And the EU would love to help you with that. The EU is not interested in manipulation or force, forcing anything upon you, but they really do want to help. So if you'd like to explore this question of Jesus further, I encourage you to write that on the, on the Connect card. Just tick the appropriate box, write on it you'd like to find out more and the EU will get in contact with you and work out how might we help you to find out more about this crucified Jesus who's been raised again so that you might have life for all eternity. Thanks very much. I hope to see you here next week.